That's the first time ever that we've ever been able to start recording at an even time. What's going on, people? We're back. Another episode of Talking Thrones, Season 6, Episode 2. After a gangbusters, I think, from both of our fronts, season premiere, we are back with Episode 2 entitled Home. Ironically enough, the same name as a DreamWorks movie that came out roughly around the same time, if I'm not mistaken. Pat, what are your thoughts before we get this episode started? Hey, Dom. You know, I think the Talking TV family here, Talking Thrones with us, Totally believes that home is where the heart is, and that heart is now beating back in John's chest. So it's right there in the wall, right at Castle Black. That's where our home is. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they made this no secret. They they didn't stretch this out for any long amount of time. So we're going to talk about that on today's episode of Talking Thrones. We're back. Season 6, Episode 2. And after last week's episode was just so awesome. It felt so refreshing. It felt like we were back. It felt like Game of Thrones had come back. We get the second episode that is one of these episodes we get every season. The plot episode where they just throw a whole bunch of stuff at you. They continue a couple storylines from last from the last episode. They wrap up some storylines that we didn't think they were going to do. They introduce a couple new storylines. They even bring back some storylines from previous seasons earlier. Like I said, Season 6 is all about wrapping up some of those lingering threads from earlier on. And we get probably one of the most surprising things is that they bring John back this episode. They Everybody kind of knew in their heart of hearts. are like, okay, they're not going to keep him dead for very long. So they may, we may as well just get to this. And that's exactly what they did. So what are your thoughts on the decision to bring John back this early in the season? Uh, hey, listen, I, I totally expected it to be like episode one, John's back, right? You know, uh, a little Ace Freely uh, back in the back Lord in the Commander groove. groove parody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like just I thought it was going to be just the, you know, Melisandre arrives and it's like, wham, bam, you're alive, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Um, but hey, they held off one episode. And I think. Uh, I, I I think they did that to establish Davos and uh, Tormund as like main allies. Like, yeah, these these guys have John's back, and they give us a little glimpse of like what life's gonna be uh, without them, right? So, like, Tormund didn't show up in last episode, but he has his moments here as he comes and secures Castle Black, you know, in the name of of John and, and what has happened to him. So. Um, you know, I think it gives us these great character moments. Uh, you know, it also kind of gives us a little bit of uh, character moment with Melisandre. Uh, I, I know we said that it didn't make any sense, the whole magic necklace thing. But, you know, we spent a little time with her in this, you know, episode. Uh, her, her doubts are really showing clear here that, you know, her doubts of Stannis she didn't really pick the right horse there. And she realizes that after five seasons. Um and now she really doubts that she can bring John back. And, you know, there, there's this is the first time we've really seen Melisandre in the last couple episodes really have this weakness. And I think for the most part, it's adding a little more dimension to the character. It's and also the, the whole storyline of the Lord of Light. 
100%. Yeah, we get a lot more development with them in that sense. But the other big thing, too, about this episode, Bran's back, finally. After a whole season of us not having him, he's finally back. Yeah. And we finally get I, the introduction I think that's of that storyline. Such a bad decision to leave Bran out of season five. Like, uh, you know, any time that they needed to really give us, like, something magical, nondescript, and and really just create cool scenes, they could have just thrown it to Bran and the three-eyed raven and just showed us some you know, trippy, uh, basically, uh, prequel esque flashback scenes. You know, it, it's just, it's one of those things where I think they missed out, uh, using Bran in the last season. 100%. Yeah. Because the, the, the thing is that even though Bran gets a bad rap for the last couple seasons, obviously for just becoming the full on three eyed Raven, you know, the whole Dr. Manhattan of the game of Thrones and kind of losing all emotion or any real interest as a character. The fact that we had gone an entire season without him and the fact that he had had such a, you know, his part had been progressively decreasing in screen time over the over the next couple of seasons as, you know, they kind of faded the magic stuff into the background in order to focus more on the political edge. The decision to bring him back clearly signifies a sharp shift much more so into the magic features. And I will say, I, I did kind of miss him, you know? It, it reminds you, like, how much of a charming kid he is, you know, the fact that he's kind of like, you know, the naive youth that's starting to get into the magic and the training to become the Three-Eyed Raven. You know, he's kind of like our eyes and ears in that sense. I think it's really cool. And for the most part, I think that even though they're unfortunately cut tragically short in the middle of the season, I think all of his training sessions with the Three-Eyed Raven here and kind of all the little bit of into the past and history that we get, obviously, as we know, which is later a setup for by the end of the season, him being the first one in a while to figure out Jon Snow's true parentage. And ultimately how that really doesn't mean anything towards the end of the show. But yeah, it, it, it's a pretty, um, what's it called? It's a pretty uh, big development there as far as that goes. So why don't we start there and then we'll save the John moment for the end of the episode. So yeah, totally. Uh, listen, <laughs> Three Hide Raven is showing Another recast too. And... Max von Sydow now too. Arrested yeah, 100%. Me. You know, it, I you know maybe that's the reason why they uh, kept the storyline out of the uh, <laughs> fifth season oh, is is like they um, maybe they were just like recasting or they had to make a casting call last second and they were like oh we don't we don't got time for this uh, you know obviously there could be other reasons I, I'm just speculating here but you know listen it, this scene that we get this episode you know obviously with Ned Stark fighting one of the biggest swordsmen that ever lived in Westeros. You know, and then Bran is like, I've heard the stories, you yep. know, the Arthur Day uh, fight. Yeah, my my yeah, my father kicked his butt, you know, like totally Bran has been, you know, a little little propaganda that his parents told him about this story. And yes, you know, it turns out. You know, the three eye raven is going to show him a little truth. Exactly. And he's yeah. not going to like it. Yeah. The, the, obviously, yeah, this gets into a little bit of uh, Game of Thrones lore and history, which we kind of left behind in season one. But it was really interesting to see them bring that back and, you know, get this really interesting character concept. You know, we get to see younger versions of characters that we haven't spent time with in a couple seasons. Like, we, this, this almost kind of reminds us, like, wow, it's been six years since we last saw Ned Stark, who was originally, again, the main character of this show. So getting to see, like, a younger version of it portrayed brilliantly by the actor, I believe his name is Robert Arameo in the younger season. I know he's, go oh, he's also going to be playing a younger Elrond in the upcoming yeah. Lord of the Rings Amazon <laughs> show, cool. ironically um, enough. But, so he gets to play two younger versions of characters. But, like, I, I love the kind of the, yeah, the perspective that it gives. Also, as as they need to, like, casually drop, you know, including this very famous sequence from the books, the fact that Ned, all of Ned's soldiers that were with him died in that fight, except for famously Howland Reed, Mira's father, who also was the one who saved Ned in that fight, providing a little bit of context to the whole brand Mira thing before Ned starts climbing up the stairs, and then obviously this is when the Three-Eyed Raven pulls him out and gives the whole famous, you know, oh, the past is like the sea. It's pretty to look at, but if you stay too long, you'll drown. 
you know? And that, that, yeah, I, I thought the whole, you know, brand whispering to his father and the father recognizing it. And we can, we can see that the three eyed Raven has a little bit of ability to affect the past. And, you know, it's not necessarily like they are going to totally change like the outcome, but the fact is like Ned could have had this feeling that, you know, someone was whispering to him and, and, there, there's really the you know it, it plants that idea because we know what's going to happen with Odor uh, later on that you know that has a little more of a drastic impact on a character's life the whole seeing into the past and you know I, I think it's well set up here in this sequence and we don't necessarily need to see what's at the top of the tower because that's going to be a scene for another time um, you know in terms of, of just the sword fight and the fact that Ned Stark, who, you know, up until this point is betrayed as the perfect, honorable, you know, warrior, you know, yeah, he's a killer. And we understand that, that he's going to do what he has to do to survive and, and protect his uh, friends and allies. But there's a certain honor code that he lives by. And we see this scene and obviously the, 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 the victories are, are told by the victors, right? You know, the history, right? So Ned Stark decided to tell this tale that he, you know, beat this swordsman, but we get to see that, uh, you know, obviously he wasn't necessarily a hundred percent honest all the time that, you know, he had to play this game, uh, to a certain degree. So, you know, it's very interesting that maybe in his younger days, he was more willing to play the game, uh, than when we saw him, you know, in the first season. Well, we definitely know he was because it was a fact of it was his negotiating power that is what allowed, um, you know, the northern the Northmen it allowed him to rally the Northmen and bring them behind Robert Baratheon. You know, there's a reason why Ned always seemed to be like that perfect figurehead that the North gravitated towards. It's because Ned Stark clearly did have some knowledge of the game. It just came from his overall detest, probably of it, and obviously as he saw, you know, the the damage and destruction that it brought, obviously with the death of the Targaryen. Uh, the the Targaryen children in game of in oh my god in King's Landing. But the biggest thing I think also is what an impact this has on Bran is because this is this is his coming of age moment right here. You know, obviously the the year absent that he was absent obviously shows Isaac Hempstead Wright's gone through his pretty significant growth spurt. He doesn't look like a little kid anymore. So they got to mature him up real quick and him like kind of and the fact that the simple fact of the matter is even though he's been in a heap load of danger obviously since his inception of the show he's still also has not quite had the coming-of-age moments that John, Arya, and Sansa, his remaining surviving siblings, have. So this is kind of his major coming-of-age moment. And it also reflects in Mira, where you would think that... In the books, it's definitely set up where Bran and Mira have a much more romantic relationship. But here, it's obviously much more so done. And they really almost do have no connection. It really is just the fact that she loves Jojen, and Jojen was the one that was supporting Bran this entire time. So now they've kind of lost that connection. And now Mira's stuck in this place hundreds of thousands of miles from her home, her one of her her closest family member, the one that she swore to protect is now dead, all in service of Bran, who is kind of just poking his head up out of the weeds and being like, hey, I saw this vision today. I saw my dad today. And Mira's like, great. You know, I just, I, I, I think that dynamic is still really well fleshed out. And then it's also, unfortunately, it's kind of ruined in hindsight by the fact that the children, that the child of the force is like, Bran, we'll need you. And it's like, yeah, literally just to bring him back through the wall because the, the minute that they make it back to Winterfell, she's like, yeah, I'm dipping. I'm going back to my family. And then Bran's like, thanks. 
see ya. And then she's just never seen again. So a little bit of a... <laughs> yeah, it is a little <laughs> weird how they wrap that story up. But yeah, yeah it's, it's, one, like... one, it's, it's one of the biggest things I think that stands out from season seven is that as much as I enjoy that season, that moment is said like, oh man, yeah, it's, it's, basically, it's basically... At least she didn't get locked, right? You know, True. where he just joins another storyline and gets brutally gets murdered. <laughs> you know, like, like she gets to, to just go home enjoy life right. you know the walkers don't even make it past person. winterfell so she's just like huh wow maybe 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 i did get something out of it out of it this way you know yeah she's gonna have a great story where it's like yeah i was north of the wall when the, the zombies were killing everybody yeah and then i decided to just get south and it worked out for me it worked <laughs> out know? pretty well i just yeah, happened that. to be bringing along one of the guys who supposedly could was the key to defeating them even though what did he do in the end besides act as bait and Control some crows? I don't know. Anyways, but let's not talk oh, about man. the future. You should have done more, like, you know, some uh, street, so street Fighter. Like I thought that what he was going to do, I, this is this is the serious thought that I thought was going to happen. I thought that he was going to try and work into the Night King and try and do some, like, Professor X sort of thing. Like, I did actually, like, believe in some credibility of the idea of Bran becoming the Night King in some capacity. You know, like, that, that did make a lot of sense to me after a certain while, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that would have been... <laughs> it would have been pretty interesting to see some sort of, you know, um, psychic connection between the two. And, you know, maybe it just delays the Night King enough where, you know, Arya's uh, a little assassination, uh, you know, deus ex machina, uh, <laughs> you know, um, maybe it hides that better and just, you know, it, it gives us a reason for her ability to kind of sneak up on him and take him out. Right, maybe. I don't know. Like I said, the pretty much the so I did this last season where I pretty much did like a ranking of the storylines this season. I think uh like last season the, the best storylines being the wall and um oh I'm forgetting the other one that was really good. I mean the wall was number one, but there was uh I, I think I had King's Landing up there pretty high, you know, as far as the setup goes. But this season it's easily everything that's going on beyond the wall, and then obviously everything going on with John as he makes his way from the wall to becoming king of the north in Winterfell after the Battle of the Bastards. So we're the, the rest of the storylines this season kind of range from a pretty good to no doy, but let's get to the biggest, I think, most obvious no doy. Uh, you know, that's not Meereen in this episode, which is everything going on in the north, which is where Roos and Ramsey are trying to have this discussion after they find that their hunters are dead. So Ramsey proposes, let's just attack Castle Black. And Roos, for whatever reason, is like, oh, that'll alienate us from the rest of the north. And I'm like, since when does the north have any love for the Night's Watch at all? I'm pretty sure the whole biggest thing is that the Night's Watch has always been some entity in and of itself. And then that that poor maester comes in and is like, oh, Lady Waldo's given birth to a boy. And naturally, this is when Ramsey pulls the sneak attack. Well, not really sneak attack. and just, you know, just hugs him and then kills his dad right there. And it's like, oh, well, bye-bye to Roos Bolton. I remember watching it and I was like, wow, this really came out of nowhere. And it's a yeah, I don't, I, I, me, myself, <laughs> I, I don't have any things to say. There's, I think there's nothing the really last, to say to it. It's like I said, it's the yeah. most obvious what we talked about in last episode where it's like, wow, they're yeah, exactly. really hammering home here that like Roos no, has lost faith in Ramsey again. They clearly, clearly set it up in the last episode, the first episode of the season, that this was going to happen. You know, my thoughts on it was that Roos definitely, he would be a little more cunning and kind of see this coming and at least have a, a little bit of uh, battle of wits before Ramsey's violence proves to outdo Roos. And, and I thought a little more complexity to this assassination uh, would have been warranted here. Just because, like, Roos, you know, like you mentioned, masterminded sort of the Red Wedding, you know, and here it is, his own son, who he knows is uh, sadistic, and he knows that, you know, he's kind of unstable, 
uh, Roos does nothing to really protect himself from from that. So I, I think Roos could have totally saw this coming and been prepared for it. But like obviously, uh, you can't prepare for such a, a nightmare that Ramsey is is that there could have been some sort of trick at play that Ramsey ones up his father and and yeah. really give Ramsey some way of earning you know, his place at the head of the Bolton family, right. not just sort of like, well, pops, it's time for me to take control of this popsicle stand, <laughs> you know, and just stab him. You know, like it's, it's, it's too easy for Ramsey uh, to gain control. And, you know, there's no consequence. Everybody like falls in line, right. you know, like it's literally just Ramsey a is a bastard. Like, okay. Yeah. Ramsey's a bastard. He's, you know, someone that's been legitimized, but like also he's sadistic and not everybody in the camp is going to necessarily agree. Like one of the most sadistic people that we know, Locke got murdered, <laughs> you know? So like, there's not exactly any like other allies that have been set up in this story that really show that Ramsey would totally a hundred percent gain control by, you know, stabbing his father. Yeah, and if anything, they try to make up for it after the fact with the introduction of the Karsarks and the Umbers and how they're all of a sudden magically allies with Ramsey and they give, like, a bunch of heaped exposition in order to try and explain that. But, yeah, the and for me, strangely enough, though, the death that does work is his brutal massacre of Walda and the baby. And the reason why I say that is because... Now that we're past the drudgery of season five, or season five is almost like, oh, we're just reminding you constantly and poking and prodding you how awful and, uh, and how despicable of a character Ramsey is, you know? Here, I think it's more so like almost like the conclusion of his arc, you know? Where Ramsey, I think, between seasons three, four, and now this arc, I think, is like peak Ramsey, where you have his introduction in season three, where I think they do a brilliant job with the bait and switch of his character and and using that as a trick in order to entrap Theon. I thought that was so brilliant and really helped to sell like the cunning and just how, you know, the just the, the terrifying nature of his character as like the new resident psychopath on the show. Then season four, you kind of get to see him in action, but it is strange when you do see a little bit of a growth from him where you establish his dynamic with his father, which at that point had not been seen yet, and then you kind of build in this relationship with Theon, obviously with a very problematic midpoint, until he is able to ultimately prove to his father that he is worthy of the Bolton name by using Theon in order to legitimize and gain and finalize their control over the North. Then season five is kind of the fun and games of his arc for better or for worse. But this is, I think a good conclusion where he finds his newly established, you know, legitimacy challenge. He immediately makes moves to deal it out and then ultimately has to suffer the consequences where he thinks he is now top shit and then has to be brought down a peg by the end. And I think they do a great job of continuing that at least with his brutalistic murder of Walda and the baby, you know, it, it's kind yeah, of well, a perfect, I also think that the Walda scene is, you know, it's it's getting us acclimated to this idea, you know, uh, Miranda, right? You know, feeder to the hounds. This episode, we see him bring Walda into the kennel and open up the cages and allow the dogs to attack her and murder uh, her and the baby. The fact is, like, we're we're sort of laying in the groundwork for Ramsey's uh, fall at the end of the season. Because ultimately, after they you know take back Winterfell and they capture Ramsay, uh, what do they do? They they have this bittersweet end where they kind of feed him and leave him to the hounds. So, you know, it's one of those things where we're setting up like this uh, cathartic moment where Ramsay kind of gets his comeuppings uh, after the Battle of the Bastards. So, uh, this is a really well placed scene that sets the tone for the rest of the season. And it gives us sort of a framework to work on. You know, here he is at the top of his game, 
murdering people in that kennel. And then obviously, you know, he comes to the same fate that he's given so many uh, people in this world. So, you know, it's it's kind of like a great bookend uh, for his story in this particular season. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, Walda and the baby, like, um, again, this sort of feels like another Dorn moment where it's like, uh, you know, Roos is kind of like no longer needed. So let's just wrap that up. Let's wrap Walda and the baby up. And, you know, it kind of definitely for me seems like, okay, we're, we're just giving him control. We just need him to be elevated to that next level, uh, to make the fight with John, you know, even more, uh, you know, basically, uh, higher staked. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where they might've spent a little more time last season, really setting this stuff up, uh, so that, you know, here at the beginning of the season, it just doesn't seem like it comes out of nowhere. Um, you know, so that's my only complaint here is that, you know, again, it's, it sort of feels rushed into, um, but I think it's clever enough to really set up the Battle of the Bastards. Absolutely, yeah. So now let's get to King. Let's cut the King's Landing real quick. We'll do a couple of these other storylines before we get to Theon and how that leads into the the reintroduction of the Iron Island. So King's oh, Landing, the, the High Sparrow was in this yeah. episode. I just saw the, the high, notes. Yeah, the like, High. Well, yeah, you're like, wait, the High Sparrow's in this episode, but also yeah, it's yeah. the fact that it's like <laughs> we have one good scene that we get another kind of a waste of a scene with Tom and where I'm like, okay, why is this even? Why does this even need to be this, in this episode? But I do think that the Jamie High Sparrow scene is good, if nothing but a little redundant. You know, it, it it's supposed to evoke a lot of previous feelings. You know, Joffrey's funeral at the beginning of season four, Tywin's funeral at the beginning of season five. It feels like every season is supposed to is supposed to begin with the Lannister death. So much so that the point where when they see Tom and dead at the end of season six, Cersei's like, yeah, no more funerals this time. You know, we've already buried enough dead. Lannisters, but uh, I get they. No, I'm just gonna say like it's very interesting because this scene really takes the moment to you know uh, bring up the argument between you know the uber rich and wealthy and the masses of people that live under their control, and you know it's it's one of the only times that Game of Thrones sort of just like right in your face tells you like how the world works, you know? And like, it's very interesting that they, they take us a little bit out of the escapism and they make the high sparrow who more or less is like, you know, sort of uh, uh, a villain in this story. And they give him that position of, you know, saying like, if the masses actually stood up, we could take down empires and, you know, that's something that, you know, translates into the human condition, into uh, modern society that, you know, if people uh, do band together and are self-sufficient, we understand that tyranny can be overcome. Um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. It almost, you know, brings up this political point right in the middle of this episode. Uh, I don't know if that's really intentional or not, or they just kind of want to jump on that bandwagon and, and throw it in the show and try to connect game of Thrones to be, uh, you know, a show of the people. Um, but it, it's one of those rare times where they kind of throw the messaging right in our face. Yeah. And, and, and one of the rare instances where I think it does kind of work because then it both accomplishes the point as well as letting, you know, the high sparrow get one up on Jamie, who was just clearly itching to, you know, to, to draw his sword and, and kill him. 
ultimately. You know, obviously, it's meant to be a uh, tactical advantage because obviously there's, there's nothing stopping Jamie from killing that guy after finding out what he put Cersei through. So the High Sparrow has to constantly reinforce it like, yeah, I'm surrounded at all times and you never know when I'm going to be surrounded. So it's a good little use of physical force there. Then... I'm just going to skip over the Cersei Tommen stuff because there's nothing that really comes from it other than Tommen is like, Mommy, please tell me how to be a stronger <laughs> leader. And I'm like... This yeah, well, a- it's... it's uh, You know, the whole thing is like we get the scene where, um, you know, Cersei's coming down the stairs to go to Marcella's funeral. And, you know, you got like, what, 10 guys who are basically compelling her to stay home. And you have the mountain who's just ready to go at any <laughs> any yeah. moment. He's you know, just and, constantly and, by her just at all times. Yeah, and, and and these 10 guys like they are delivering you know Tommen's message. Yeah. And they do not want her to take it the wrong way because yeah. they understand that the mountain's going to mow them down. Yeah. If, if Cersei decides to push past, you know, Tommen's concern for her going to this uh, you know, funeral. Right. So it, it's a very good scene. It shows like really the threat that the mountain poses, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, also uh, was it in this episode or the next episode where the mountain goes around town killing? Uh... I'm pretty sure that's the next episode because oh, okay, then that okay. leads directly into the small council meeting. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we'll, we'll get to that, uh, you know, at a future episode. But yeah, the mountain just now sort of getting introduced as you know this this really uh formidable foe that no one can really take down no matter what the odds are uh you know we're starting to see that peppered in here obviously the conversation between uh Tommen and Cersei is is gearing us up for when uh Tommen goes full you know radical religious on us um you know it's it's sort of getting us to that storyline because you know Cersei should give him guidance. He's not getting what you know guidance he needs, and he's going to turn to the High Sparrow and Marjorie to to really uh, try to fill that void that he has. Um, you know, and and you know whether or not that's the right move for him. You know, that we'll never know because he he basically uh, is very easily hoodwinked. Yeah. Um, you know, Tywin knew that in season four, um, and I think that it was beautifully set up that like. Whoever sort of controls uh, Tommen's moods and, you know, can talk into his ear is really going to have control over the power of the kingdom. And, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, Cersei doesn't necessarily have the ability to do. Yeah, definitely not. It's it, again, it's it's one of those things where I, I think the biggest thing that's kind of established by this season is Cersei's final acceptance that her children are gone, both before and after their deaths, you know? She she kind of had that moment at the end of last episode, in that moment in last episode, where she was kind of acknowledging Maggie the Frog's prophecy about her children after losing both Joffrey and Marcella. And so it almost feels like there's kind of like, like doom cloud hanging over Tommen throughout this entire season, especially when he had bails for, especially because it's like, it feels like he's just going out of his way to like just endanger his mother first, obviously with the whole decision to ally with the high sparrow. And then with his decision to ban trials by combat, it's like, dude, you're sentencing your mother to death here. So she kind of ends up having to make some moves of her own in order to ensure her survival. And it sucks that she can't even depend on her own son. Now we move on to the next no-doid storyline, Miri. We're just going to spend five seconds on this <laughs> that go past because this is 
Like, I don't even know what this seed accomplishes ultimately. I really don't. Like I said, I, I'm not, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I already complained about all the problems that I had with the season the last episode. Basically, Tyrion reveals from Ferris that no doy, the slave masters have retaken Young Kai and Astapor. And then Tyrion's like, well, we have two dragons still, you know, even though Daenerys has the third. Why don't we try do, put, taking a leaf out of How to Train Your Dragons book and trying to befriend them? And then it results in Tyrion telling this <laughs> half-baked story to the dragons as he takes uh, their chains off and that's what endears them to him like i don't know it, it's a good scene well i think you know first of all um you know he goes in there he you know starts talking to them he he puts the torch which can be seen as a weapon he puts it on the ground you know so he's doing all the right moves to basically treat the dragons as if they're intelligent creatures and you know obviously you know they're CG monsters here. So, you know, whether we as the audience believe that, you know, he sort of approached them diplomatically and sort of was able to win a little favor with them, you know, that might be a, a, a little, uh, you know, believe it or not, you know, that's up to you, uh, to decide. Um, but obviously the first dragon, which I would imagine is the, uh, sort of in the pecking order of dragons is, the the kind of lowest he pulls out the the basically the bolt that holds the chains uh and then as soon as he turns around the other dragon seems to realize what he's doing and so you know shows his uh neck and basically wants the bolt taken out as well so you know i think it's one of those things where the dragons uh at first might think he's a you know dinner um and they're kind of like analyzing him but obviously, when he lets them go, uh, I think they understand what he's doing and the gesture he's making. Um, and so that sort of endears them a little bit to them. Uh, but again, this is one of those scenes where it's really just like Tyrion walks into a room with dragons drunk. Does he make it out of there? <laughs> it's he, like they come up with the idea for a joke. And it would have been one thing yeah, if but the, 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 the up- thing is, it, it's all about does he get out of that situation? And, you know, the beauty of the scene is that we, the audience, uh, you know, contribute whatever we want to what took place in that scene. You know, so it's the writers aren't really telling us the full story. Um, We, the audience, actually get to put what we think uh, into what happened. So there's a little bit of audience participation in this sequence, and I, I think that's what makes it work. Absolutely, yeah. And the biggest thing here also, I think why... It doesn't work is the fact that this seems to be clearly setting up for because this was also around the time where there were a lot of fan theories circling around about how Tyrion might be also be a secret Targaryen. And there are a lot of my friends I remember that I was talking to at the time were like convinced they're like, dude, Tywin said all the time that Tyrion was not his son. You know, it it could be that Tyrion could be a secret Lannister. And it felt like, okay, if if it was setting up for Tyrion to be the third dragon rider, because obviously we know that John rides Rhaegal during the fight with the the undead but no ultimately that ends up being a little bit of a bait and switch because Viserion ends up dying and becoming the dragon that the Night King uh rides obviously when you know when he revives it at the end and I don't know it just it kind of feels like way like a just another waste in this waste of a storyline so only other thing really on Essos is the Bravos front for Arya she gets beat up by the waves some more but this time Jacken comes <laughs> along in order to play a little bit of a bow a little, little bit of a carrot in the stick situation going on right here you know and he's like oh so, you know, uh, you, you'll get you. I can give you your eyesight back. You know, I can give you food. I can give you comfort. All you have to do is, you know, just say that you want it. 
And she's like, no, she, she definitely understands. She's learned all her lesson. She's like, no, I understand that this is a trick. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. And he's like, okay, you've passed. And he lets her come back to the temple, you know, a little bit of a yin and yang, a little bit of a, okay, you know, we're taking, we're, we're going to take some pity on her. But at the end of the day, I'm like, cool. Just more impetus for her to absolutely despise the faceless men just for their shameless treatment yeah, it, of her, you know. It, it, this whole storyline is is really going slow, right? You know, so, um, you know, they kind of introduce this whole idea that she's blind and going to beat up last episode. Here it is like, oh, you don't want to do that anymore. Like, uh, you know, just answer these questions. All right, we'll give you a second chance. So we don't really have much going on with this storyline. We don't you know, know where the next chapter of this is going to happen. So it just bridges the fact that she went blind at the end of last season to the point where she's going to get a second chance. That's all that's transpired in these uh, two sequences between episode one and two of season six. And we'll have to see where the storyline goes. Like it's, they're being very economical and not really showing us much. Um, You know, and, and as we watch this season, we'll probably find out that there really isn't much behind this storyline. I think, um, what does she do? She has to become an actor to take down someone. Well, no, first she starts, well, no, first she starts watching the play. He sends her to like observe and just, you know, watch the play. And then then very similar to the oyster salesman, he casually unveils who her, who her target is going to be because she doesn't want to have, he doesn't want her to have any sort of emotional connection to her again. And of course what happens this time is she ends up becoming endeared, to who had, who is supposed to be her target and then exactly finds, and so and, it's and then, it's this is like chance too yeah um and, and the whole thing plays out you know a, very much like uh opportunity number one so yeah it, you know it's one of those things where i, I think it's a slow burning storyline um you know and uh, hey listen it, it's aria's a cool character we like to uh see where it goes but you know at the end of the day um, she literally just decides to run away from these folks and yeah. uh, becomes, you know, sort of the silent assassin in Westeros. It, it uh, leaves and, me with a lot of questions about the end of her arc, like namely, like if the faceless men cared this much, right? That she tried to send the way, why didn't they try to keep sending people after her? Because like, yeah, she threatened Jacken, but it's like, yeah, Jacken's not the only faceless man. So why, like, wouldn't she? He's definitely gonna be like, oh yeah, I'm totally gonna take her seriously. I'm totally not gonna send anybody else after her. You know, I don't know. Just well, I think you know, more I, missed opportunities for Arya's arc, specifically with the last. I, I think season. it might not be something that they really explored in this, but the fact of the matter is, it might be the the understanding the practicality of being human versus you know being a faceless man. So, like, you know, there are going to be these urges for you to basically use this ability for personal gain. Um, but you know, that sort of reveals you, you know, it puts you out in the open. It gives you an opportunity to be had. Right. And so maybe that's the lesson that's being learned here in this storyline is that, you know, you really have to become someone else, ignore those things, you know, let things slide and really figure out a way to get to your target without being seen or noticed or really, uh, allowing for, the blowback to come your way. And, you know, obviously we don't get that fully developed. Maybe that's what they were going for. Maybe not. But I think the fact is, um, you know, it could just be a way of life. And cause when we jump to season seven, 
and we see Arya, and she's sort of, you know, this new silent assassin back in Westeros. Um, she seems to have accomplished this ability uh, to separate herself as Arya versus the silent assassin and, you know, basically be able to live both lives uh, perfectly fine and not necessarily get caught when she takes Walter Frey out and all that type of stuff. So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I, I think the storyline um, kind of meanders and kind of shows us a couple things. And we, this is a case of the audience has to fill in the blanks to figure thing, you know, decide what they want. Um, and I don't think we have really enough dots to connect here. Uh, you know, I'm just grasping at straws to try to put this together. And, you know, that's the type of storyline this ends up being. Yeah, 100%. I agree. So let's get to, again, another big reintroduction for this season, the Iron Islands. We get it back after <laughs> yeah. two seasons of not seeing anything. I mean, we will, I mean, we had the brief moment in season four where Yara tried to lead that raid on the Dreadfort, still questioning their decision to put that in. And then, but this is the first time that we've really seen the Iron Islands since the finale of season three, obviously, when we had the brief insert where Yara proudly declared to Balon that she was, uh, that, that she was going to go and rescue Theon. Once again, like you were saying, a great economical use, uh, a very economical use, I should say, of the Arya storyline. Not a great economical use of the Iron Island storyline throughout the entire season. This storyline is just one of those that just seems to pop in and out whenever <laughs> it seems important. It was really important in yeah. season two to establish Theon. Then they kind of just ignored it until the end of season three when Yara said she was going to go to Theon. Then they're in one episode in season four, and then they just probably disappear for an entire season, you know? And now they're back, and they have somewhat of a significant part over the next two seasons only for them to once again vanish and not really be that important in season eight but for right now we need the storyline because we need to introduce Euron Greyjoy who supposedly is going to be the big bad of the last two seasons it starts off Balon just chastising Yara for giving up her uh, for just giving up on the invasion of the north and this is the other problem with how they utilize the Iron Island storyline is I'm like how does this this only serves to confuse the Game of Thrones storyline even more because now they're constantly putting timestamps on like how long it's been since certain events happening happened for no reason. And the fact that the Iron Islanders were absent for all of last season, I'm just like, how much time has gone by? And aside from the one instance where we saw the Boltons taking them, taking back Moak Island from them in season four, we haven't really seen this. So we, we're not exactly sure like what happened with the Ironborn invasion in the north other than brief conversation. You know, we assume that the Boltons drove them out. But like, the, it just feels so weird for this to be inserted back in this way, you know? And then the way that Balon is criticizing Yara. And to the point where Balon is just acting like a complete fool now, where it's like, okay... Balon obviously has never been the brightest ruler, clearly, but the whole reason why he invaded the North in the first place was because he saw a tactical advantage, you know? The majority of the Northerners had gone south to fight in the war. But as Yara says, it's like, they're all back now, you know? The, thanks to the Boltons, they were restored in their castle. They've driven us out. They've united against us. We can't stand against the United North. And the fact that Balon is trying to continue this invasion, it's like, yeah, maybe it is a good idea to get this out of here, you know? Maybe Euron Greyjoy does have something going for him, you know? Yeah, I, I think Balon... <laughs> Obviously, um, you know, just gets thrown off the bridge here. You know, like there's no subtle way for me to say this. You know, his character has kind of run its course and you just sort of show him obsessed with what we know as the viewer his his you know mission was, which is to, to cause, um, you know, uh, basically chaos in the north and take over the coastal cities and, and really expand his territory. Um, and he's obsessed with that. And then he walks across the bridge and gets thrown off it. And, you know, that's a subtle way of saying, like, 
you know, hey, the Ironborn, they got a brand new, you know, bag, you know, baby, to to use the awesome powers of terminology. Uh, so uh, basically, well, here, I thought you were going to go with Papa's got a brand new bag from uh, from. Well, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, we we could bring up that reference, too. I don't know where I was going with that reference. Yeah, I was about to say that, that the, one the, kind the, of felt. The the fact uh, the, the the fact of the matter is, uh, we got a brand new leader here. It's going to be a new way of the Ironborn sort of doing things, and you know, there's hope, right, for the storyline that it's going to be interjected and it's going to be a little more relevant to what's been going on in the main storylines here. Um, you know, so I, I think that's what happens this season is the Ironborn sort of get rebranded and they come in. Uh, you know, hot and, and basically um, we see them as major players and, until again, they're sort of uh, just sort of put on a back burner and they, they exist in the world. Uh, but their storyline kind of wraps up like relatively quickly, um, you know, later on in, in the series. If anything, the thing that I'll say, it's kind of ironic because Euron Greyjoy becomes another character that becomes heavily criticized in the last two seasons. But the strange thing is that with the way that they introduced Euron here, you almost can't help but agree with him simply for the fact that he just brings up all points that are 100% true. You know, the fact of the matter is they kind of very much change Euron's character from the book. He's a, he's a late entry character and those characters are usually pretty hit or miss. You know, obviously we were just talking about Better Call Saul earlier. You know, they brought... Lalo in at the end of season four and he's now become such a force to be reckoned with as a, you know as part of being a crucial part of that show and so they try to do the same thing with Euron Greyjoy but I think the character fails for two reasons one I don't think personally think the actor is that good Pilu Iceback he gives a very one note uh, performance he doesn't really I feel like get into a lot of the range and the depth that is so well known for all these characters in the show and the other problem too is the fact that they haven't yeah, but whether one... or not that's his fault is up that's a different here. story exactly because, because again, you know he's it's... a late entry character so we don't yeah, exactly he's only have... he only has the scenes that the writers give him and the fact of the matter is his character is not really given these uh great well-written sequences like you know his character development is really just on the fly you know it's always related to a major storyline so we we don't really necessarily get enough time with the character to really see uh, where this actor could take it. So yeah, it, it's, it's more, I think a problem with just like, you know, this is a character. He's obviously going to side with Cersei at some point. And, you know, it's, it's kind of just like very straight to the point, you know, one note, like you said. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's, it, it, it's a shame because I think this is a character that could have been awesome because this is a character that uh, has significantly less screen time. Uh, or should I say less page time in the books when he's introduced, obviously, because, you know, this, this is we're now getting into the Iron Island storyline that actually was in the books in uh, book four, A Feast for Crows. Um, and that obviously transpires much differently with the King's mood and with Euron taking control of the Iron Islands. And the biggest thing here about Euron is that he does it very tactfully. He does it almost kind of from the shadows. He lets everyone else say their piece, and then he comes in. He's very soft-spoken, but he's very threatening. He's very menacing. This is a world traveler, you know. He famously has this eye patch in the books. You know, he's he's gone traveled around the world. He's gone to Ashai. There's a rumor that he's experimented with dark magic. And it even seemed like in the books, he sends out uh, his brother Victarion and his troops on very specific raiding missions in order to very tactfully maintain the Ironhold's presence, the, the Ironborn's presence, I should say, in Westeros. He famously sends Victarion West to woo to, to bring Daenerys to him in order for him to marry him. And then he, meanwhile, goes and raids Old Town. And the theory is that he is raiding Old Town for some ancient texts that have to do with dark magic that could potentially, some have even rumored, give him control over the White Walkers. Like, Euron is, a, Euron is very much being set up as, like, a very big threat to come in the books. And it's, it's a shame because they... they 
barely scratch the surface of that character in the books. It kind of ends up being this like really crazy one note, just you know, kind of cackle factory of a character, like a like a bad Captain Jack Sparrow wannabe. And it really sucks because the the, the King's the King's Mood storyline for me was one of the better secondary storylines, similar to Dorne in the books, and they just kind of flub it. You know, they obviously spend significantly less time with it because they want to focus it on Theon, but. I don't know. There's still, there's just still feels like there's something missing from this entire the story. Well, I feel like in TV, you know, you have a show that's lasted six seasons, and at this point, you have fan favorites and you have you know sort of an expectation that's going on. And you know, this show has always been like, hey, that's your fan favorite. Well, we're gonna off them. But for the most part, you know, at, at some point they. Uh, give plot armor to some of the main characters and they're not really going to do much with them until, you know, uh, really the final season when all bets are off. And, you know, to bring in new characters and have them competing for screen time with established characters, the ones that we tune into the show week to week, um, you know, I think that's really the bounce that they uh, had to work with. And, you know, obviously they decide, you know, hey, we'll we'll do a couple scenes here and there and, and whatever, but we got to streamline Euron's character. Like he's got to, you know, integrate well into what we have going on with the Iron Isles. It's got to be in the scope of Theon. You know, it's, it's really Theon's story, but obviously, you know, Euron's there to play antagonist to, um, you know, a, a newly forged, you know, Theon and Yara storyline. Absolutely, yeah. So now let's bring it back to the wall, back to the centerfold of the action. We get to see the payoff from last week's awesome setup. Obviously, Sir Alistair and the Night's Watch are ready to break down the doors. Sir Davos and his Night's Watch members are ready to defend themselves against Jon's body. At that point, like I said, it's like I really don't understand why you're trying to fight for a corpse, but they're obviously still under the impression that they can hold off long enough in order to have uh, Melisandre resurrect uh, Jon, presumably after Ed brings back the wildlings and it all seems like all hope is lost you know davos gives a really awesome speech beforehand you know he gives off um you know he gives off uh i never thought i'd have to use one of these apologies for what you're about to see as they bring out the swords this really great heightened moment of tension and then you hear the rumbling on the doors before the giant breaks down the doors and the wildling army comes charging in. It, it definitely i think is a little bit less eventful than moment of hope but just given how vast the wildling numbers are and how easily they over they outnumber the night's watch members it's really funny you get two moments of comedy where Tormund kills one guy who tries to come out and kill him before restraining ollie and then one poor soul accidentally fires a crossbow into one one the giant and <laughs> i don't think he accidentally he fired says, it he, he fires it uh, <laughs> expecting God, something worse. but he, he really worse. oh man like uh, that effect, you know, is oh, was... far from perfect, but it, it serves its purpose. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just picks him up, bashes his head against the wall and like leisurely throws him in front of all the Night's Watch. And it's like, uh, this could be all of you being smashed yeah. against the wall like this, or you could surrender. So, you know, visually we see like hostilities come to a quick end because there's just no way that the Night's Watch is really going to uh, fight back against this force. So, yeah, it, it's, it's you know, again, this shows that you don't need a large, long battle for every little plot point. This is a small skirmish. The wildlings come back. They secure the area. You know, Davos and the supporters of Jon Snow uh, basically take back control of the Night's Watch. And, you know, this is really, we don't know what the purpose of that is, um, you know, but... Davos is going to tell Melisandre to give it the good old college try and try to resurrect John. 
uh, I don't even think he really knows why he's asking for it. He just, you know, has seen the, the magic and realizes that maybe he, the world would be better off with John alive. And, yeah. you know, they, they go ahead and do the ceremony. Well, it's an interesting tidbit there because, like you said, it's like Mel Sandra kind of even reminds him. It's like, look, the, what the, everything that the flames told me, it was all a lie. You know, Stannis, I believed in. It's like, okay, so so I may have the power to resurrect John, and even if I do resurrect him, what point is that going to be? You know, Davos, obviously, you know, we we like Davos. We think Davos is a good guy. You know, we we've been just by watching his actions, even though he's not a perfect man. You know, we've we've led to assume that Davos is one of the more fan favorite characters. He's got a good solid head on the shoulders. He has a good sense of right and wrong. He's really good at kind of rallying and inspiring people. And so naturally, because Davos has that sense on his head and because we sympathize and rely on him so much, we kind of have this expectation that we can come to depend on John, even though we also have this knowledge in our head of all the good that John has done, you know, and so we kind of preemptively know that John will that that ultimately the world is better off with Jon Snow alive rather than dead. So I think that it's it's that kind of introspection while also kind of unknowing but also with mixed with a little bit of dramatic irony that kind of sells the rather quickness that comes because this easily could have been something that really in any other tv show probably would have been dragged out for at least a couple episodes at least until the midpoint you know they may have dragged out you know the siege as far as you know Davos and the Night's Watch happen to hold them off until Ed, you know, Ed trying to negotiate with the Wildlings, all that. But like I said, this is the show's a lot more fast paced, a lot more fast track. They got to get towards the ending. So Melisandre does the ceremony. They don't think it works. They have the dramatic moment of pause where everyone leaves the room. The camera zooms in really close on John. And then you see Ghost wake up before he starts breathing. And it's a really good effect. It's a really good shocker in order to cue, in order to kind of cue you into the cut to black, right? Right as he suddenly starts breathing there. You know, it's really good direction. It's really good acting on like Kit Harrington's part. And John's back. I remember I famously made a post when that when that moment first happened. And I'm like, he's back. And a bunch of people were really mad because they hadn't watched the episode again. I'm like, <laughs> it's 2016. It's peak Game of Thrones time. It's nine o'clock on Sunday. Yeah. What are you doing not watching the episode yet? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, go ahead and tease you a little bit. You said famously. So what, this uh, show up on CNN or uh, oh, you, maybe. you spoiled it for a couple people? But, okay, uh, I definitely spoiled <laughs> it for a couple, for more than a couple people. Yeah, but the the fact is, uh, you know, listen, um, I, I think if you're really a fan of this show, you knew John was coming back. There is no right. way that you thought he was It was never like dead. this big mystery, um, really. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, I guess they could have left him for dead, but Melisandre's sitting right there. So, right. you know, again, I, I think it would have been like one, it would have been different if they basically had a few of Stannis's men hunting her down. You know, maybe uh, Alistair, you know, she gets past those men and gets there and Alistair kidnaps her or whatever, you know, like. Uh, there needs to be some sort of like she's in danger and can't really, you know, do the ceremony because we've seen, you know, the brotherhood without banners and we've seen resurrection possible. And so it's like, why not? You know, Melisandre is powerful. She's used all this other, you know, magic before and, you know, she can do this type of thing. Like it's, you know, just a matter maybe she hasn't done it before, but like it's gotta be possible. Absolutely. And, you know, I think from the viewer standpoint, you're not hoodwinking us. You're not putting any misdirection on this to make it think that this is not going to happen. So I, I feel like, you know, ultimately, um, if you're really or truly a fan of the show and you've made it to uh, what is this, the 52nd episode? Um, I, I think you knew it was coming. 
yeah, it was one of those things that wasn't that difficult to guess. That's why I kind of like really threw me off. It's like, really? You actually didn't think that this was going to happen? Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, I feel like, you know, that kind of that heightened anticipation of big TV moments kind of eradicates people's common sense, I, I think is really the only sort of logistical thing that I can come yeah, up with. You know? you know, listen, like spoilers, um, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, are really obsessed over having no one talk and mention things and you know at the end of the day like you know spoiling things like if you could avoid it you know fine that that i totally get it you want to kind of you know feel that moment for yourself uh but at the end of the day you know in reality you know sometimes you're going to read an article or sometimes you're going to be talking with a friend and and something gets out you know and you you're going to have something spoiled and at the end of the day, you could still sit down, you could still watch something and you could still appreciate how the story is unfolded. And, you know, I think that's the most important part about why we read books, why we, you know, essentially watch movies is because we get to see the mechanics of those mediums at play. Uh, you know, to me, it's not the sudden surprise that, you know, I got to see, you know, John wake up, you know, it's, it's really how it happens and what are the scenes and, and how well crafted they are. Um, that's really what, you know, gets me continuing to watch TV shows. So at the end of the day, I understand that there's this whole section of the, you know, uh, movie watching TV watching audience that needs everything to be spoiler free. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, film and television is a lot more, uh, rewarding of a watch if you're really studying like the scene structures and how things play out the mechanics um, and you're worried more about that type of stuff and really getting to enjoy that uh, than worrying about a particular scene being spoiled or not. Yeah, 100%. I agree. So with that being said, that is it. That is another episode of Talking Thrones Season 6, Episode 2. Be sure to keep tuning in every new Friday for brand new episodes. We'll be back next week with Season 6, Episode 3, Oathkeeper. Like, sorry, Oathbreaker, I should say. I'm getting my episodes mixed up. I always get those two episodes mixed up. You guys are not going to want to miss this. We're winding down the journey all the way to the discussion over the Iron Throne, the season finale. Pat. Where can the good people follow you? Hey, listen, I'm, uh, you know, on Instagram at Patrick W. Huber, H-U-B-E-R. And, you know, I'm posting things there every once in a while. You know, it's it's very slow going, but uh, I'll figure it out. I'll find something to, to report or put on there or something visually good looking. And that's it. You know, just awesome. catch me there. Sounds good, yeah. And, of course, you can follow myself at Movie Nerd Reviews across all platforms. Be sure to follow the official Talking TV podcast on all social media platforms, including TikTok. Be sure to follow us on Twitch, subscribe on YouTube, all of the above. It is always, people, 12 seasons in a short film, and watch more fucking movies. We'll see you guys next time.